morning, friends. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. And today we will read together in John chapter 2. If you do not know, my name is Byron Brash. I'm the pastor here at Calvary. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to approach me in the hallway after the service. And today we're reading out of John chapter 2. I'm using the New American Standard. It should be on about page 1261 in the church Bible in front of you. And it says this, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near... And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And Jesus made a scourge, a whip of cords, and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out all of the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what authority or what sign do you show as your authority for doing such things? Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews were confused and said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so when he had, was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which was spoken by Jesus. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man himself. Amen. Now, as we transition to communion, I'm going to go and encourage you to begin opening those little difficult little packages that we should have handed you out by the door. If you did not receive a communion element, please raise your hand and we will bring them to you. Uh, the bread is on the top underneath a piece of cellophane, clear, and then the uh, not wine, but the grape juice is underneath. But for the next couple of minutes, I hope to discuss with you as you open your communion elements, I hope to discuss with you the importance of communion. And I think oftentimes that we mistake communion as just a reminder of the past. But communion also reminds us of the past, but also reminds us of what is to come in the future. This comes in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 29. This is Jesus speaking the day before, the night before he was crucified. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, Jesus broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Matthew chapter 26, verse 27 says, And when he had taken a cup and had given thanks, he gave, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I'm going to revisit verse 29 because it reminds us that communion is not just something that reminds us of the past, of what has come, but also of what will come. Verse 29 says again, But I say to you, Jesus says to them, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom kingdom. Jesus confessed 2,000 years ago that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the Father's kingdom, which we understand through Revelation chapter 20 to represent the millennial kingdom. 
So to them then and to us today, communion serves as a reminder of both what Jesus has done by paying for our sins on the cross, and not just our sins, but for the sins of the entire world, but also reminds us of the future hope that is to come, that Jesus will return again, and that his return is imminent, and that his return is certain, and that upon his return, that he will display himself as victor over all, and he will redeem all of his creation, and that he will keep all of the promises that he has made towards us. So if you have your bread ready, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. After he had given thanks, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Thank you. Bow with me in a word of prayer, and then we will go into music. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and thank you for the reminder of communion the monthly reminder that we have here at Calvary Bible Church that not only was your sacrifice and your death sufficient to pay for my sin, but also communion reminds us that you will return again. And Lord, I just pray that we would live expectantly, that we would live as if the hope that is to come is imminent and is certain. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather here physically, but also thank you for those that can gather here through uh, technology. Lord, we pray for them that you will continue to protect them. We thank you for all that are joining us either later today or this morning live or here with us. And we thank you that we can just uh, appreciate uh, your sacrifice for us. And we thank you for the gospel that has bought us and redeemed us and that will save us. And Lord, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I want to discuss with you the very nature of God, and then how His nature shapes our lives. Today, we see the very nature of God, and then we see how that nature shapes our lives. Because what I see in John chapter 2, at the very heart of this passage, I see one single attribute of God, and this attribute of God is very overlooked in modern day. However, my plan for this morning is not to tell you what attribute I see behind the text itself, but what I want you to do is as we dive into the text itself, I want you to discover it with me. But to help our cause, to help understand kind of the attribute at hand, what I want to do is first define what I mean by an attribute of God. What I mean by that is is something that really describes God. So, an attribute of God would fill in the blank. God is blank. Or, God is blank. For example, an attribute of Byron Bradshaw is that Byron is bald. Byron is a pastor. Byron is a father. He is a husband. Byron is stubborn. Okay, you tracking with me? So, an attribute of God is God is So what I've done is, on the back of your note sheet, if you have it, it should be on your pew, 
On the back of that note sheet, I put together 31 attributes of God, and the one that I see in John chapter 2 is listed as of one of 31, and I hope as we discuss the passage that you will find it with me. I'm just going to briefly read the attributes of God that I have compiled. It says that God is infinite, immense, God is good, He is just, He is merciful, He is gracious, He is omnipresent, He is imminent, He is holy, and He is pure. God is self-existent, transcendent, eternal, omnipotent, immutable, that means unchanging, omniscient, wise, sovereign, faithful, and loving. God is spirit, just, triune. He is truth, glorious, creator, creative, savior, judge, and he is long-suffering, and he is knowable. My question for you is, as we unpack John chapter 2, is which of those is at the heart of the passage? But I want you to go a little bit deeper with me into the theological realm. I want you to kind of put on your theology cap for just a second. Because a thought occurred to me this week on Thursday as I was putting this sermon together. The thought that came to me is that the attributes or the nature of God determine. The nature or attributes of God determine why we were created and how we are to live. Let me say that again. The nature of God determine why we were created and how we are to live. Think about the Bible for just a second. This is so true that God is holy. So then what? That we are to be holy too. What does it say in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16? It says that you shall be holy for God is holy. God is triune. He is three in one. We are not. But that tells me that God is relational. And so are we. God is just, despising and punishing evil, so should we. God is loving, commanding us to love God and then to also love others. God is truth. God is truth, compelling us to not only just know Him, but also know truth. God is forgiving, telling us that we should also forgive others. The attributes of God determine... Why we were created and how we are to live. What we see in John chapter 2 is one characteristic of God. And then what I want us to see as we unfold the passage, as we get further and further along, I want to see how that one attribute, that one theological idea, then shapes our life even today. So today I'm going to break up our passage, kind of give you a preview of our talk The passage, in my opinion, breaks down into three main sections. We're going to see John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, exegetically. Now, what do I mean by exegetically? What we're going to do is we're going to unpack the scripture. We're going to see the setting and, and the background in the text itself. And then we're going to see the passage theologically. And then, number three, we're going to see this passage practically. So if you have your Bible, notice the setting for our story in verse 13 of chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Notice that, went up. We'll talk about it here in a few minutes. And Jesus found in the temple those who were selling oxen 
and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. So as Jesus enters the temple, what does he find? Well, number one, it says that the Passover of the Jews was near. Now, the question we have to answer is, number one, what is Passover? What is its origin and what is its importance? And this most basic thing, the Passover was a feast. The Passover was a feast which celebrated, right, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. In a sense, Passover is our 4th of July. Okay, tracking with me? That the Passover celebrated Israel's deliverance from oppression, from, they got independence from Egypt, and our 4th of July, in a similar way, celebrates our independence from Britain. The Passover was usually celebrated in a feast, whereas our 4th of July is celebrated with fireworks. The feast of Passover is typically observed on, in March or April on the 14th day of Nisan by their calendar. And on that day, between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., the, the, lamb, the Passover lamb was slaughtered and the meal was eaten. But what is the origin of the Passover meal? The origin is found in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23 through 27, to kind of give you a little bit of TMI, to kind of give you an understanding of the background of verse 13. The Passover, the original Passover was on the heels of the 10th plague of Egypt. So if you remember back in Exodus, if you remember, what did Moses say, or what did God say to basically Pharaoh to let my people go? And every time Pharaoh refused, God sent a plague upon him. So we have had nine plagues, such plagues as darkness and fleas and frogs. But then on the heels of the tenth plague, we find Passover. And the tenth plague, as you probably know, is when God struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians and then God passed over. That's where the word actually comes to Passed over the doorpost of all the Israelites that put the lamb, the blood of the lamb on their doorpost with branches of hyssop. This detail is found in Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. I will read it quickly with us all. If you have your Bible, you can flip there. This is where Passover originates. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts and none shall go outside the door of his house until evening, until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for, your, for you and your children forever. Notice that word forever. This is in Exodus. This is 1,400 years before John chapter 2, verse 25. And when you enter the land which the Lord will give you, and as he has promised you, you shall observe this as right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and spared our homes and the people bowed low in worship. So what is Passover? It is a feast commemorating the day that happened in Exodus chapter 12. And then what is this origin? The origin is on the heels of the 10th plague of Egypt. Now I want you to fast forward 1400 years to John chapter 2. 
And the importance of Passover remains, and the importance of Passover cannot be understated. To kind of give you an idea of the culture that we are dealing with in John chapter 2, the Jews are still celebrating the Passover feast, but what would happen is that ethnic Jews from all over the nation of Israel, all over the world, really, would migrate to Jerusalem. In other near um, other Middle Eastern contexts and texts, such as Josephus, Josephus mentioned that almost three million Jews would migrate all the way from all around the world to Jerusalem to observe the Passover feast. Let me put that in perspective for just a second. The city of Huntsville is what? How many people? About two hundred thousand? Is that what we would say? So, wait, so three million people from all over Israel and all over the world will migrate to Jerusalem. And to kind of give you another idea that Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, is about maybe one square mile. In modern day, the walled city is probably closer to about actually half a square mile. So let me put that in perspective. Our central courtyard in Huntsville, where the courthouse is, is probably about a half a mile. Now imagine three million people, either in that courtyard or around it all together. So just picture the story when we come into John chapter 2. What is Jerusalem like? It is absolutely overflowing with people. There are people everywhere. And when it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, what that means is that Jesus went up in elevation, that Jerusalem is about 2,400 feet. So Jesus went up, there are people everywhere observing the Passover meal. And then what does Jesus find in the temple? Verse 14. And Jesus found in the temple... Those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. What does Jesus find? Well, number one, he finds merchants selling animals. And then number two, he finds money changers. Why are the merchants there? That seems kind of random that there is a feast of Passover, that three million people are surrounding the city. But then when Jesus enters the temple, he sees merchants and he sees money changers. Why are they there? Listen to this thought from a scholar to kind of put it in perspective. The merchants are there because Passover meant big business for Jerusalem-based merchants. In the temple complex where they set up shop, vendors were selling oxen and sheep and doves for sacrifice. And since it was impractical for those traveling from distant lands to bring their animals with them, the merchants who were Jerusalem-based sold them animals required for sacrifices at greatly inflated prices. So why were the money changers there? So we know the merchants were there to sell animals to people that migrated in, but then why are the money changers there? The scholar adds this, the money changers also provided a necessary service. Every Jewish male 20 years or older had to pay, when they arrived, an annual temple tax. But the temple tax could only be paid with Jewish money or a Tyrrhenian coin. So foreigners had to exchange their money for acceptable coinage. And because the money changers had a monopoly on the market, the money changers would then charge exorbitant fees for their services. So the merchants are there to sell animals to foreigners coming in, and then the money changers are there to basically change out the coinage of people traveling in for acceptable coinage to pay the temple tax. Okay, let me put this in perspective in a 21st century culture of what is going on in the temple. How many of you have ever flown anywhere before? Okay, all right. Now, how many of you, let's add it, how many of you have ever flown to a foreign country? 
Okay. So I want you to go there with me. I want you to go into an airport. I'm sorry that I'm going there because airports are miserable. Anyway, can I get an amen to that one? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> amen. Okay. <laughs> the best amen I'm going to get this morning. All right. So imagine with me that you walk off the plane in a foreign country. You walk through that gate. What do you immediately find? You find two things. You find merchants and you find money changers. You find merchants that are trying to sell you something, restaurants, snack bars, newsstands. They're all trying to get your money. And what are the prices like in an airport? They're terrible. It's like $25 for a small fry, okay? So they're trying to get your money. And then what else do you see in an airport? Really, you see merchants and you see money changers. People exchanging your domestic coinage for what is proper in that particular culture. Now, I want you to take that image, and I want you to put it right into the temple. (laughs) The most holy place on earth. So when Jesus comes into the temple, the most holy place on earth, the place that should exhibit the very presence of God, what does Jesus find? He finds gross commercialism. He finds people trying to gouge others, other Jews that are there just to worship the Lord. No wonder Jesus gets mad. Because he finds in the temple, in the very house of the Lord, in his Father's house, he finds people that are there just to gouge out a prophet. And then notice how Jesus reacts in verse 15. You know, I think we have, before we, I think we have this idea that Jesus is just a big softy, you know. He's just a big pushover. That he happened to find a whip outside of the temple and then he gets mad and runs in with it. What does Jesus do in verse 15? And he made, (laughs) I mean, he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he said, take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. How did Jesus react? I want you to notice the first phrase. And it says, and he made a scourge of cords. What does that tell you? Just picture that. Jesus walks in, he sees an airport, right? In the most holy place on earth. And then it says he made a scourge of cords. That means he premeditated. He walks probably out of the temple, finds some reeds. Right, And he begins to weave together a whip in which he walks back into the temple and begins hitting people with it and hitting animals with it. We have this perception that Jesus is a big pushover, but here Jesus goes probably outside of the temple putting together this whip to drive out these people making a quick buck. What else does Jesus do? It says that he poured out the coins and Jesus said, take these things away For you are making the temple a place of business. Now, I wasn't there, obviously, 2,000 years ago. But I would imagine when Jesus walks in with this homemade whip, and he is pouring over tables, I would imagine that the people in the temple were terrified. That is one result. But then also, notice what else Jesus says in verse, or what it says about Jesus in verse 17. What else does it do? It says, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 17 is a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9, which does what? The wedding in Cana earlier in John chapter 2 confirms that Jesus is the Messiah. 
And again here it confirms to his disciples that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He has come from God. So we see the setting in verses 13 through 14 that the Passover is there. Jesus walks in and he sees commercialism. Jesus reacts in verse 15 through 17. And then notice Jesus' authority in verse 18. The Jews then said to him, what are you doing? What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Verse 19, Jesus said to him, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. Keep, make a quick note of that. We'll talk about it here in just a second. It took 46 years to build this temple, and yet you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has spoken. So as Jesus has his homemade whip, and as he is pouring over the money changers' tables, what do they basically ask him? They ask him, what authority do you have to do such things? I mean, imagine, go with me on the airport scene, okay? Now, let's just say you had a really bad flight, okay? You flew in coach, and you were in the very back of the plane by the bathrooms or something, by a person that was snoring. I don't know. But maybe you had a really bad day, really bad flight. So you get off the plane, and you walk into the terminal, and you start overthrowing money changer tables. You start overthrowing newsstands and snack bars. What are people's reaction going to you to be? Well, number one, they're probably going to ask you, who are you? Number two, they're probably going to tell you that the cops are on the way. And please do not tell that person that your pastor said it was okay. Please don't say that. But they're going to ask you, who are you? What authority do you have to overthrow my newsstand? And what does Jesus basically say? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What is Jesus' authority to overturn the tables and to use his whip His authority is himself. Jesus does not need an outside human authority to do what he is doing. As is spelled out in John chapter 1, who is Jesus? Jesus does not need human authority. Jesus is the creator of all things. What else does it say? That he is the life and he is the light of men. That he is the Messiah. That he is the prophet. That he is the chosen Messiah of Israel and of the entire world. That he is the perfect lamb of God. Jesus does not need human authority to do what he is doing. But then, what are they really asking for? They're asking for miraculous proof of Jesus' authority. And then what does Jesus say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, his miraculous proof of his authority is basically that his body in three years will die and will be risen again. But I want you to notice their response to that phrase. They think what? They don't think that he's talking about his body. They think he's talking about the physical temple. And how do they respond? They said it took 46 years to assemble this temple. What are they talking about? Like I said, I'm going to go deep into the cultural context to help us understand really what is going on. We know what Passover means now. We know why Jesus went up. But here, what are they talking about the temple? To kind of put that in perspective, the first temple was assembled when? Who assembled it? Very good. It was assembled by Solomon, but who wanted to begin the construction project on the temple? His father, David. David saw the, the Ark of the Covenant in a tabernacle. And David decided to assemble the temple. 
But because of bloodshed, Solomon had to complete it. But then what happened to that temple? Babylon, when they arrived, they deconstructed it. They tore down the old temple. Then fast forward 500 years to a man named Herod the Great, who was basically a puppet king of Israel, who embarked on a series of construction projects in the last century B.C. And one of the construction projects he had was the temple, and it took, what they would say, 46 years to assemble. But they are misgiven. They think that Jesus is referring to the physical temple that he is, over, that he is in, but instead he is referring to the temple of his body. But I have a simple question that is not answered in the text. Why does Jesus get so angry? It doesn't answer, right? It talks about his father's house, but it really doesn't really mention the real reason why. Why does Jesus get so angry? The answer to this question reveals, in my opinion, the attribute or the nature of God behind the text itself. The reason I believe that God or Jesus becomes so angry is because he knows and he wants his, the human beings in the temple to realize that God is pure. That God is perfect. He is worthy of our reverence. He is worthy of our worship. That God is pure and that the acts of the money changers and the merchants were not. I'm I'm drawing a line. I'm I'm going to split a hair for just a second. I mean that God is pure very differently than God is holy. I'm going to separate the two. God is both holy and pure, but I'm going to make a distinction between the two. What I mean that God is holy, what I mean by that is that God is set apart. He is lofted. He is upright. He is set apart. He is sacred. But the attribute I see in John chapter 2 is that God is pure. He is perfect. That he hates the presence of sin and impurity. And the fact that the people of Israel are doing an impure act in the very place that is meant to represent the purity and holiness of God is a vile act of disrespect. God is mad. He is angry because he knows his father. Number one, he knows the purity of the father and he is disgusted because of the people's irreverence and because of their lack of purity itself. But let's ask a deeper question. Why else is Jesus mad? Not only is he mad because of God's purity, but why else is Jesus mad? To answer this question, I was sitting with a friend at Walton's about a week and a half ago, and we were talking about this passage in John chapter 2. And he mentioned to me that one of the reasons probably that Jesus gets mad is is not only because of their impure acts, but also because the very people meant to live pure weren't. Think about the nation of Israel, that God had ordained the nation of Israel to be a light to the nations, a light of purity, a light of obedience, and a light of holiness. Catch this. The world 
around Israel should have looked at their lives, looked at their laws, looked at how they lived, and found the God. But instead, because of the conduct of Israel, because of their disobedience, because of their lack of holiness and purity, what did the nations do? Instead of searching for the God that they worshipped, they ran to a God, an idol, to meet their ever-growing demands. The nation of Israel should have been so pure and holy that they should have stood out in amongst the darkness. I think it's the same with us. That we should live so different and so holy and so pure that the nations around us, the neighbors, the people around us should look at our lives and say, they have something I don't. They worship the God and I just have a God. I believe the reason why Jesus is so upset is not only because of the purity of God, but because the nation of Israel is not living the way that they should. What I see here is that Jesus fiercely defends the Father's purity and fiercely expects their own. My point today is quite simple. It is since God is pure, he expects pure living. Let me say that again. Since God is pure, he expects pure living. As for my application today, on the back of your note sheet, if you have it, really what I want you to do is I want you to first understand reality. I want you to understand the reality of God, but also our reality as Christians because let's just be, let's just pull down the veil a little bit. Let's just get into the closets of our spiritual life and into our worlds and into our minds and into our eyes and into our thoughts. We as human beings, but even we as Christians, we love to live beyond reality. <laughs> Let me say that again. We love to live beyond reality. We love to daydream. We love to see things not as they are. We love to think back upon our lives and our perfect children or our love for retirement that is hopefully going to come. Or we, we elevate our importance or we elevate our house. We elevate our cars. We love to imagine. We love to live beyond reality. But this is true of God as well. That we love to imagine a God that he is not. Can I say that again? That we love to imagine God as he is not. That we distort God's nature to fit our own desires. We take God in his infinite grace and mercy. We take this infinite being and we force him down into a box that we can fully understand and perhaps that we can manipulate. And what it does is it changes our reality of who really God is. This week I saw a Facebook post and it compared the modern idea of Jesus. The imagination that we want Jesus to be to the biblical idea of Jesus. You catching me? So I saw a Facebook post that compared our modern idea or imagination of Jesus to who Jesus was actually in the Bible. I'm going to list just a few to you. The modern imagination of Jesus is that Jesus was just a good teacher and man. That he watered down words to avoid offense. 
That he didn't beat people with a whip. Sorry. That he sends all to heaven and dismisses hell. That Jesus overlooks sin and never corrects us. But the biblical idea, the reality of Jesus is that Jesus was born as God Almighty in the flesh. That he loves us enough to speak truth. That Jesus warns us of sin and judgment in hell. And that Jesus hates sin and exposes the truth about it. This is what I'm talking about, that we take God and we imagine something he's not. We do not like to see God in his reality. I say all that to prime you for what I'm about to share with you. Today, I want you to understand reality. I want you to understand who God really is. The number one reality is that God is pure. That, can I just say it this way, that God does not make mistakes. Can I get an amen on that one? That God is pure. He is perfect. He is impeccable. He is pure without blemish or wrinkle. And not only is the Father perfect, but also is His Son. And since Jesus is and was perfect, Jesus was able to do two things. Number one, Jesus was able to meet the Father's requirement of perfection. And number two, since Jesus was and is perfect, He was able to pay for the sin. Only a lamb without blemish was sufficient to pay for this Passover Sacrifice and only a Savior without blemish was sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. Since Jesus is perfect, since God the Father is perfect, and since He created us in perfection, God the Father expects us as believers to also live perfect. To live without sin. To live pure lives. But we know that that is impossible we're all fallen human beings but that does not void god's expectation of our lives that god wants us to live holy and pure lives to not just have sin laying around in our lives that we just excuse that we just ignore as okay or as something that god will put up with and god will forgive which is true god will forgive and god will but there's always accountability there's always consequences for a sin let me just draw it this way my children they irritate me can I get parents? Can I get an amen in the room? I love, I love my children, but they drive me absolutely bonkers. Okay? But their sin to me is forgiven, and I will forgive them in the future. But that does not mean that their lives are without consequence. That is God the Father, that our sins are forgiven. That we stand before Him justified. Number one, that God is perfect. He expects us to live perfect lives. And I want you to understand that God is perfect. But I also want you to understand our own reality. That as Christians, number one, that we are justified. And what does that mean? That word justified means that we are declared innocent. That despite our guilt, that we are legally declared innocent, guiltless. That through the blood of Christ, our debt is paid, despite our guilt. And that when we believe in Jesus Christ, that before the Father, we are declared legally innocent through his death. Number one, that we are justified before God. Our reality is justified. And number two, that we are accountable. That we are accountable for our sins. 
so many times Christians just placate sin as something that happens or sometimes we get immune to it or sometimes that we just feel like there's no hope in living a pure life and God really doesn't expect that anyways and God really will forgive me anyways so it's just a kind of okay. But reality is what? Yes, we are justified. Let us never forget that, that before God the Father through the blood of Christ that we are declared legally innocent, but that does not mean that we lack accountability for our actions, that our sins do matter. That we should not treasure sin, but that we should ask for forgiveness and eradicate our lives from it. But then the question I have is this. Why do so many Christians... Live like the money changers. Why do so many Christians live like the money changers in John chapter 2? That they are in the very presence of God, yet they have no reverence for Him. Why do so many Christians, in even times of my life, and I'm sure of your lives as well, why do we live without much thought to purity? Why do the money changers live as if there is no reverence to God? And I believe the, uh, their idea of why is revealed in the word temple. If you notice in John chapter 2, what you cannot see in, in the original or in English is that in the original language, there's two different words for temple. The word that they understand as temple is heros. And the word that Jesus uses is naos. The word heros is a place of gathering, is a worship place, but it's not of, it's a, it could be a place of business. But what Jesus sees as the temple is naos, a sacred institution, a place of divine worship, we would say almost a shrine. The money changers just see the temple as the temple, as just another building that people worship at. But Jesus sees the temple as naos. Why do so many people live like the money changers? I believe the reason, the difference is because a lot of people just see their body, their physical flesh, as heros and not as naos. We see our physical flesh as just a place, a flesh of needs and desires. But in reality, our body is what? I'm hearing murmurs. Our body is the temple of God. And we should respect it as such. First Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Since God is pure, he then expects purity. Since God is pure, since he is perfect, impeccable, since God is without blemish, since God does not make mistakes, since God made us in perfection, then we as human beings, although we are justified before God, we are still accountable and God still expects us to live pure and holy lives. My application for you today is understand reality, but then also to change your reality. Many of us imagine God to be something that he is not. Many of us imagine the Christian life to be something that it's not. The Christian life should be lived with purity and holiness. That God is pure, he expects purity, and our body is the temple and it demands purity inside and out. Before I close today, allow me to just very quickly share with you, and the gospel has been mentioned throughout this message 
The gospel is quite simple, that you and I are sinners, that we, that we make mistakes, and because we make mistakes, that causes us to be eternally separated from God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'm going to read out of Romans chapter 3. This is the gospel in a nutshell. If you do not have this passage highlighted in your Bible, I would. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed as a satisfaction in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously, currently, and forever committed. What you see in those fancy words is that we are sinners, that Jesus died for us, and that if we believe in him, that God will justify us before God the Father. My hope for you is that you believe in Jesus Christ, but that you would change your perspective of the Christian life. That since God is pure, he then expects us to live pure lives. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, I, this is not a popular sermon to preach. It's much easier to uh, make us feel good and to uh, find the 18 ways to live happy and healthy lives and the 18 ways to be good moms and dads. Um, Lord, I, um, we thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you that you have uh, lived a perfect life, that God the Father is our example of perfection and and without blemish, Lord, I just pray that we as Christians, that we would uh, not imagine you to be somewhere, not, not to imagine that you're just some uh, softy that just allows us to do anything we wish. But, Lord, that we would live as Christians pure lives and that the people around us would then see our lives and say, you know, they're different. They don't live like I live. And that they would find the God in the midst of all of the gods of the world. Lord, thank you for today. And uh, what an honor it is to worship you it's an honor to see your scripture and to talk about it it's an honor to gather here with my friends and my family we thank you also for those that are not able to be here Lord just pray for them we thank you that they're joining us via technology and Lord I just thank you for your grace and your love and thank you for your son and all the things that he did for me Lord, we lift up today. I pray that as we would go, that we would live pure lives. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.